Y'all, we appreciate Samuel Merritt University so much for continuing to help keep this podcast going. They want us to tell you about their new Advance Your Practice Scholarship. They're offering a $10,000 scholarship to anyone who enrolls in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. If you're interested in getting more information about the programs, you can visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's fnp.samuelmerritt.edu. And as always, we'll put that link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime and nursing, healthcare, advanced practice nurses, all that stuff. This week we have Tom and Ben back with us. Thank you so much, you guys, for being here. These are the the guys from the awesome new podcast, We'll Continue to Monitor. I'm so excited. I know I've talked about it a lot lately. I'm going to keep talking about it because I'm so super stoked about it. Welcome back, guys. Glad to be here. We appreciate you having us back on. <laughs> well, it's always good to have you guys on. Tom's been on a few times since you were on last, Ben, and so it's good to have you back, of course. We've got a really interesting show planned for you guys. also want to let you know that on one of their upcoming episodes of We'll Continue to Monitor, yours truly is going to get to host an episode. I'm so excited. It's a very creepy story, so you're going to want to definitely <laughs> tune in and listen to it. I mean, when I say creepy, y'all don't even, I can't. Ugh. Super creepy. That was the way to do it was ultra creepy. It's no joke. Uh, when we were talking about topics, I laid this topic out for Ben immediately. He said, we need to have Tina on for this one. So I was like, oh, boy, it was meant to be, Miss Tina. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. So you guys go check that out. We'll continue to monitor. Don't forget. We'll get right into this bad. It's actually a physician assistant this week. Tom and Ben are nurse practitioners. They're advanced practice nurses. And so any chance they get to rib their colleagues, uh, PAs, they, uh, I'm sure, <laughs> I thought it would be funny to do a physician assistant. But... <laughs> I was so glad when I saw this because those guys are really high up on their horse. We need to knock them down a few. They're the natural enemies, like cats and dogs, NPs and PAs. Stop it. Yeah. It's all in good fun, though, right? Well, you know, sometimes. <laughs> when so. it comes right down to it, we're all professionals and we work together in harmony. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like EMS yeah. and the ER. You kind of, you know, you kind of banter back and forth with each other, and but it's all in good yeah. fun. And ER nurses and ICU nurses. Well, I mean, depends if you keep asking us about skin conditions before we sit him up there. I'm like, well, after I got him breathing when he wasn't breathing, I didn't really stop to look at his skin. So, yeah, you guys, for those of you who are new, new nurses just starting out. Yes, skin is very important, but not to the emergency room nurses. It's just not that's not they're not turning them over and doing a skin assessment. You do that when they get to the floor after you kind of get them get their blood pressure back up from 60 over 20 <laughs> hey 
you know what? If we if we turn a patient over, it's to get him off a backboard or to look for an exit wound. Okay, <laughs> so those are what's important to us. Knowing what they had for breakfast and their coffee preferences is what ICU nurses want to know about. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> oh, we're just giving each other a hard time. I love it though. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I was like, okay, well, and that's the last time Tom will be on the show. So. And, <laughs> and that's was a fun the end run, of the people. show. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I guess we can get started on this story. It is, of course, is a, it's a tragic story. It really ticked me off. Like I, bef- we were kind of running through the show uh, notes before we started recording, and I got, I, I got mad. Like I, I get so mad at these stories. I'm so sick of these stories. But I'm not going to stop talking about them because we have to continue to shed light on these things that happen. It does contain sensitive material. There is mention of suicide. Um, so just keep that in mind. It's a little trigger warning for you guys. So this is the story of William Argy. He's a physician assistant or was in New Hampshire. He was 49 years old, was married to Maureen, who was 39. Maureen was a social worker. So all the time when you watch Dateline or 2020 and all these true crime shows that really go through and, and kind of give the backstory sometimes on, on the victim, it's all you will see the family and friends talk about how they lit up the room and they were just wonderful but this woman was really and i mean just amazing she apparently would do tax preparation for people who couldn't afford it she did worked for habitat for humanity her mother's favorite photo of, uh, of her was her standing on on top of a roof, donning a tool belt and working with Habitat for Humanity. So, I mean, I always try to empathize, you know, with the, the family and with the victim and try to tell as much as possible. But this particular one is so like we need more social workers, more good social workers in this world. My mother actually worked as a social worker for several years when I was a kid. So, yes. And they don't get paid a lot. Most of the time they are barely getting by not much more than the people that they're helping. So yes, we need more of them. And and one of the things that's in the show notes that I think was very telling is she didn't mind getting dirty and to do the work. Like she didn't just sign a paper or process paperwork so that people could get benefits, which is extremely important. I am not downplaying that, but she actually went out into the community. She helped build the houses she helped. She went to their houses to help do the tax prep if they couldn't get out of their house. She was very involved, and I think that's a, a telling trait of a person that they're willing to go into the environment and do the work as as much as just sitting back and managing and helping. They had two young children, and apparently their home was like this picturesque home. It looked like it was out of the pages of Southern Living or you know some storybook with the boxed hedges and all of that. But apparently what was going on inside the home was not the way that it appeared, you know, on the outside, the picturesque setting. So, uh, but her family joked that her calling as a social worker chose her and not the other way around. Nurses say that sometimes, you know, like it was a calling or, I love that. I think that people mean well when they say that. Sometimes I don't like it. You know, I, I feel like it diminishes the professionalism yeah. and the skill and the education, you know, that that someone has to have, including social workers. I think it's the same thing. You know, you call something a calling because then you can, I feel like people can, they think that you can pay them less because they don't mind working for peanuts. 
you yeah, know they just wanted to do it so bad that they gave up their free time mm-hmm. like no no right. they they still deserve good pay for yes. what they do yeah. and social workers i believe you know we've we've done many stories unfortunately on like child abuse and stories where things went unnoticed and it's probably because and and there were reports of it you know people someone reported that something bad was going on in the house and a social worker went to the home to investigate and then nothing was ever done and it's probably because they have so many cases on their caseload that they just can't possibly get to all of them and they end up you know some things fall through the cracks so reminds me a lot of nursing (laughs) i definitely appreciate this uh, you know social workers and people who do that job i really do but she didn't mind rolling up her sleeves and jumping into action and doing, you know, getting out into her community. And I do appreciate her for that. And I just wanted to, you know, spend a, a minute talking about her and honoring her and, and her memory. So her husband, William Argy, had a, a longtime position as a physician assistant that ended abruptly, inexplicably. So the reasoning behind that separation wasn't disclosed to the public. I don't know. I mean, you could speculate, but what's the point? I mean, you, it's like, for some reason, he just lost his job. Probably not of his own accord, or not of his own choice, I guess I should say. When someone's in a long time, air quote, you know, position, and then suddenly, without explanation, loses it, that is never a good sign. You know, so, yeah, so this guy has a lot of problems, both personally and professionally. The loss of employment really impacted him and his family. I just wonder, though, maybe... If whatever it was wasn't already going, you know, hit the spiraling downward was already maybe going on, and that's what caused him to lose his job. I mean, it's kind of like there had to have been something going on before, I would imagine. I mean, maybe not, but. And some of the stuff that you're about to talk about, you know, with him is an indicator that he makes some bad life choices. So, yeah, I would agree. I, I have a feeling that. He his uh, employment may have ended abruptly, but I think the problems had been building for quite a while. Well, he was not able once he lost that job, he was not able to hold a steady job long term. And so there were debtors persistently attempting to collect on accumulating debts, vehicles close to being repossessed. And the thought of bankruptcy was being entertained. Argy was known as a narcissist by those who were close to him. And so he just sent the family further into debt with a gambling addiction. The family had reportedly attempted an intervention to eliminate the destructive behavior, but it was not well received and did nothing to curb his appetite for gambling. Sometimes, I don't know, these interventions, it's something that people do. I just wonder if it may be, I don't know, maybe it is helpful. Sometimes I think it can be kind of destructive to people. I would assume that in cases where the person wants help, that it is going to be helpful because now they know they have support. But for a person that's a narcissist who clearly does not care about what's going on in his family lives, in his family's life, you're right. I think it's probably just going to agitate him and not really produce a lot of uh, results. Yeah, he's going to dig his heels in and just become more of what he already was, I think. Yeah. Well, the marriage obviously began to fracture. Maureen was starting to feel unsafe. She confided into to her friends and family that she feared for her safety because he was becoming volatile and attributing their financial troubles to her. Of course, blaming her. He threatened on many occasions to end her life. And so she started talking to divorce attorneys and 
started developing plans to remove her and her children from that unsafe environment. And he knew that this was going on. And this is something that we've talked about before, about how important it is if someone is in, a, in an abusive relationship, that it is important to, to try to, as discreetly as possible, make plans to get away, you know, make preparations and try to keep that person from knowing because it just seems to set something off in them. And, and it, it's, it's, you're living, you're still living in that environment with them. I want to point out, regardless of the situation, anytime a spouse says something to the effect of, I will end your life, that that's never, that's never an okay, like that should always be a red flag indicator, whether you're the wife or the husband in the relationship. I would almost say at that point, when they get to, to that level, you do need to be worried about your safety. And this is probably not a, a situation you want to stay in. You could say a lot of ugly things in an argument, and I'm not going to say I've never said dumb things. I say dumb things all the time regularly, let alone in an argument. What I I would never even accidentally like I can't imagine a situation where a rational person would say, well, then I'll just murder you. (laughs) Yeah, it just that's that's never an okay. And for any person listening to this, that should always be an automatic red flag that something bad is coming. Well, unfortunately, many, especially women, but many people are in situations where they financially can't make that clean break. They can't, they have to plan. They have to have somewhere to go. Yeah, it's awful. It's a terrible situation. I mean, look at the situation that they were in. He had gotten them into so much debt that I'm sure she probably didn't have, she was a social worker, as we were just talking about. She didn't make a lot of money on her own. So she just probably didn't have a lot of resources and she was having to try to plan it out and couldn't just up and move and just leave. You know, she had to have somewhere to go. And that's so sad. This happens over and over and over again with people, especially women. And it's, it's, it's so unfortunate. I get really tired of talking about it. And at the same time, I'm not going to stop talking about it, as I said. So she decided to call law enforcement um, on March 30th, 2019. So this is an inter- I thought this was such an interesting move on her part. She wanted to make sure that the emergency line to police was operational in case something happens and to protect herself. I don't know if this is what she was doing, but I have been known, uh, you know, you guys know I'm paranoid. I'm scared. I'm a chicken about everything. So if I'm by myself, I have been known to dial 911 from my phone so that it would be the last call made. And then you could just pick it up and hit redial and it would call. And yeah, I've had to have that conversation with her. Sorry, I accidentally called click. (laughs) So I don't know if that's what she was doing or. Most departments, and again, this is not in any way nationwide, but most departments, even if you say, oh, I accidentally called 911, we're gonna send somebody anyways. They don't do that. Um, Most. (laughs) Let me just tell you, they don't, I know. well, in one, well, and one of the reasons I would say that is because a lot of times that's what a person will do. And then when the other half walks in the room, they have to think of a story. And so that's what you will commonly get when you are the dispatcher receiving that 911 call is, oh, I'm sorry, I accidentally dialed this. And so as a precaution, and again, that's what I'm saying is don't be mad at your police department if they don't do this. I would just say that that's a very common thing to happen. So a lot of organizations will go ahead and send an officer just to double check because 
what's the harm? If it is an accident, an officer knocks on your door, you have to talk to him for 30 seconds, he leaves, it's no big deal. If it's not, then hopefully we can prevent an argue from happening. Well, so. I will just, uh, it probably should go on record as saying that I'm not giving you guys advice to dial 911 on purpose and say it was an accident because it's probably illegal. So, <laughs> and I'm not even going to say that I've done it before or that I will do it in the future. So there, I was kidding. <laughs> yes. All lawyers involved would record one out of 10 don't recommend. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm tempted to be like, Jason, remove all of them. That's great. Oh, this, why? I don't know. Tom, for some reason, you and I do episodes together. We always do this. We like go off on these (laughs) I'm sorry. I thought that's what you wanted me to do was talk. It's perfect. It is perfect. It's so much fun. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day, and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So, of course, I let her use it, and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis, so now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC-free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to 
cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. So that's what she did. She called law enforcement just to be like, hey, I want to make sure this works. I can get through to you in case I need to get through to you. There was a five-minute recorded conversation to the police. Wow, that is a long conversation to just be like, hey, I just want to make sure had a, a line open. She went ahead and told them, kind of explained like, hey, I'm just letting you know, my relationship with my husband is very tense. I am concerned. So I, I think that was more than just a, let me just be sure I can hit redial and, you know, get you back quickly. On April 1st in 2019, she contacted her father and told her father that she thought Argie was monitoring her cell phone and her other activity. Argie had a friend that he frequently would go gambling with. His name was James Timbus. Timbus reported that on a few occasions, okay, a few, not one time, okay, a few occasions, after many alcoholic beverages, the conversation would turn toward Argy's failing marriage. Argy would allegedly remark bitterly on how he detested his wife and, quote, wanted to get rid of her. So, on one gambling excursion in particular, Argy offered Timbus a portion of his wife's $400,000 life insurance policy, in which he, Argy, was the sole beneficiary. So, the catch is Timbus would need to help him murder Maureen. When he declined... Uh, sounds so polite, doesn't it? When he declined, a reduced sum was offered if he could locate a hitman. So he's like, well, how about you take a smaller sum of money if you can find someone else uh, to do it f- for you or for, you know, that could, could do it for me. So again, Tempest is like, no, not doing that. So this is the part I want to talk about because we did talk about this pre-show and you were like, no matter how many times I do this story, somebody says something like this and nobody ever takes them serious. I would contend, though, as a guy who has never murdered a wife. So let's just put that out there. OK, I've never murdered any of them. <laughs> Allegedly, she's sitting downstairs. So I could tell you she's, you know, fine. But what I was going to point out, though, is a lot of the times when we look back, you know, retrospectively, we want to be like, why didn't he say something? And to me, it's it's a matter of what was actually talked about, because I could see two guys drinking, they're inebriated, they're, you know, they're out, they've been having difficulties. I could see a guy saying something like, oh, I, I'd be better off if she was dead or something like that. I didn't say I agree with it. I said, I could see that and not think, oh, my friend has intentions of hurting his wife. I think it comes down to a matter of specificity. You know, if he says specifically, I will give you X amount of dollars, that would probably be a tip off. Like, oh, this guy's been thinking about it versus two guys drunk talking about it. I don't know. I I just I don't think I would consider that an emergency either. So I just don't want Timmy B to get into too much trouble. Mm -hmm. For Ben, do you want to jump in here and bail out your counterpart before I rip him to shreds? I would just like to point out that I believe the last time I was on the show with you, it was another case where they were trying to hire a hitman. And I believe at that time we gave a warning about don't hire hitmen. They're always cops. And of course, this guy, like, you know, he's trying to this to me, Tom, I hate to disagree with you. 
No, this to me sounds like he has the specificity that you're speaking about. When it says he offered a portion of his wife's insurance policy and then a reduced oh. portion for, for to try to locate a hitman, that to me gives the specificity of, you know what? Maybe Tom's a little bit more serious about this than he previously let on. <laughs> Tom, well, I mean, it, yeah, I like it, how it turned to me being. The, well, because that's what we were talking about earlier was you had never killed your wife, or you know. <laughs> I just want to point out to people though, because it is it is very you get emotionally involved when you talk about these stories, and you want to be mad at Timbus for saying why didn't you, she might be alive if you had done something, and and that's true she might have been if he had done something. I think most human beings, though, are not wired to go. My friend was drunk and said, I wish my wife was dead. That my first thought is murder is the next, you know, inevitable conclusion to that conversation. Again, if I said, I'm going to tell my wife she needs to die, that's a problem. Or if I said, I'll give you 10%, you know, like that, some evidence that thought has been put into it. That's when I think most people would recognize that there are bigger problems. I'm not giving him a get out of jail free card. I'm just saying a lot of times we want to go after these people and say, you're a terrible person because you didn't say something. But realistically, most people in that position probably wouldn't even recognize that there was an issue to deal with. I'm hoping I could be wrong. I'm waiting to hear about it from Miss Tina about how wrong I am. But that's just... I just don't want a lot of people to listen to this and go, why didn't I say something? Well, you know, most people wouldn't, I don't think. I do understand the perspective that you're coming from. I, if you if you try to put yourself in their shoes and think, you know, night out, gambling, drinking, you know, inebriated. Uh, and just, you know that the marriage is going bad. You know, yeah. yeah it's, and he's, t- he's talked about this before. But if somebody brings up a life insurance policy... I feel like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Big old red flag right there. That's a little too, we've gone a little too far. We're entertaining that idea a little too much. You know, it's like you've gotten way too comfortable talking about this. That's gone. That's not just like, well, she was dead. That's like, um, I wish she was dead. And actually, I have a lot of money that I could get if she was dead. And actually, I could give you a portion of it if you would help me, which turns into, no, no, I don't want to help you. Well, what if I gave you less money and you found me somebody that could do could do it? That conversation right there is way too it's just we went we stepped over the line, I think, along way back when of when he said of just saying, you know, being Well, maybe Timbus said, Hey, I listened to this one podcast and she says never hire a hitman because it's always a cop. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why he knew you know, that nobody would ever, you know, realistically do this because clearly they're a cop. So maybe that's why he got out of it. I don't know. I agree the way you're laying it out. You and Ben are, you know, going over this and saying, oh, but we had this I, I all worked out, out before uh, you got on. I, I would just say if you're very specific, if a person is telling you specific details, that's when I would worry. All right. For the people listening, that's all I was trying to say. You know, the, in this particular case, I, I know I know people, it probably is really hard for somebody, especially if it's your friend. You know, maybe Timbus could, do you think he maybe tried to talk him out of it? Do you think he maybe went, you know what? I don't know if you're serious or not, but if you are, let me just tell you, that's a really stupid thing to even be talking about, let alone entertaining the idea of following through with. Yes, I would assume that that was part of this conversation was him going, hey, you know what? You're drunk. Shut up. Don't say stuff like that. And not, and again, without being there, without hearing the actual wording, 
it's real easy in retrospect to go, oh, clearly he was going to kill her. But, you know, maybe Timbus was just sitting there going, he just had too many beers. You know, old Argy, every time he gets six in him, he starts, you know, talking funny. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, like I said, to me, the details is when it, it changes from an angry outburst to a plan. You know, it's real easy to say, I hope something bad happens. Not that you should say that, but that is something we've all said, thought, done, whatever. But to say, well, I have $400,000. I can give you 10% of it if you do this, this, and this. I'm like, no, that's when you should be worried. Well, on April 4th in 2019, police were contacted and asked to conduct a welfare check to the quaint little Londonary home. It's not clear as to whom actually initiated that welfare check. But when police arrived at the residence, they discovered that Maureen was deceased in her home. Her death was deemed suspicious, and ca- the cause of death was listed as strangulation or smothering. So, Argie was not in the house, and there were reports that said he had taken her car and debit card on a road trip to neighboring Connecticut. He stopped for refreshments at Dunkin' Donuts on the way and charged his caffeinated beverage to Maureen's card. And then it was a few hours drive to Connecticut. I mean, after all, you know, you American does run on Dunkin', right? Could be a future sponsor. Just throwing that out there. That's true. This is very true. I would totally accept. <laughs> By the way, uh, Dunkin' in no way is responsible for, <laughs> for any of the no, uh, actions that happened to this. But No, they're not. <laughs> and we were in no way trying to imply that. And thank you, Bridget, our researcher, for that cute little joke that she threw into the show notes. Yes. <laughs> well, it's a little com- comedic relief. You know, you kind of have... Um, yeah, this stuff can get heavy. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of times I will start laughing right... Like, I'll start talking about something else right before like a really dark part. And I, it's, my mind just does that automatically. And I'm just like, why do I do that? Stop it. You know, just... <laughs> you can be serious for two minutes, surely. So he used her card again to purchase a hotel room at one of two of Connecticut's only casinos and then immediately proceeded to hit the casino floor to try his hand with Lady Luck. So Fortune did not smile upon Argy. However, once again, investigators were unable or were able to track Argy down at the casino where they found Maureen's vehicle and her cell phone. So prior to packing up for a casino excursion, he attempted to take his own life, but unfortunately was unsuccessful. So he was charged with first-degree murder and falsification of physical evidence. Prosecutors concluded that Argie strangled his wife uh, in their shared home but wanted it to look like a suicide. He attested in court that he found his wife had hanged herself. When he was asked, well, why didn't you call 911? He passive-aggressively commented, "Hmm, what could 911 do, sir? By the way, not the correct answer when an investigator is questioning you about the possible murder of your wife. Right. Being a sarcastic asshole Mm -mm. uh, or jerk. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, You can edit that however you need to. Not appropriate. No. It is not going to help you. I promise you. (laughs) Even if you want to be sarcastic, don't be sarcastic. Don't do it. But it makes me think that he's the one who called in the welfare check because you wanted it to look like a suicide. Oh, 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 that's keen observation there, Ben. Yep. 
That, that is really good because you know the only other thing I was thinking is it was Timbus and I was like Timbus it's kind of hard to defend you Ooh. if you called in you know the welfare check you clearly didn't think it was nothing but I think Ben's speculation mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense yes he had his Duncan he was ready to go he was like yeah I'm gonna go ahead and just say oh you know someone needs to check I was all the way house. in Connecticut yeah yeah, or, yeah I, I was here the whole I was all the way at the casino mm-hmm. with coffee here's my receipt see yeah yeah i had no idea this is a shock as much of a shock to me as it is to you oh boy he initially denied that he even took her car and card but later on admitted that he did take her car and her cell phone investigators were quick to dismiss any notions that she was suicidal they did confirm that she was depressed due to having an emotionally abusive spouse and the financial situation that he was solely responsible for that otherwise she had a strong support system in family and friends her friends and family remarked that maureen was full of life and her small smile would light up a room so argue was convicted of both charges in 2021 this just happened last year the the trial did his trial was delayed multiple times due to guess what i'm going to say it the presiding judge delivered a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for first degree murder he was also sentenced to one and a half to three years for falsification of physical evidence. I always wonder why they do that. Because they have to. You have to adjudicate the charge. Something, something. So if they charge it and they are found guilty, and again, your each state's law may be a little different, but there has to be a, if there's a charge and some type of conviction or whatever, there has to be an outcome. Even if it seems like, well, that doesn't even make sense. He's going to be in life. So, okay. Correct. Yeah. Well, in this case, that's what I assume what they were doing, but there's always got to be an ending. They tr- they can't just say, well, first degree murder. So everything else doesn't matter. Like they have to proceed with that. So, okay. This is a little bit of an aside, but if, and you may not know this, but if uh, first, for example, the first degree murder charge was thrown out for some reason, I guess I could see the importance of having at least that one to two, one to three year yeah. or whatever, because at least he's going to be in prison for a while while they maybe retry is that how that would work could they could they throw out part of a conviction and not the other yeah each one of those charges is seen as an individual entity like we look at it as the overall like the court case but as far as filing and charges as far as i know uh, and again there could be updates to how the legal system does this but usually each individual thing is its own separate you know, case. So that way, like, let's say they do come back and he gets a retrial for whoever knows what reason. And they reduce the life sentence to like, Oh, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Then you can still say, Oh, well, he's still got to do three years for like it just because they reduce the one, it will not reduce the other. Like they are their own individual cases. Okay. That makes sense. So even if they threw out the life, even if they threw out the life, you know, they said, oh, he's not even he we decided she did commit suicide, mm-hmm. but he tampered with evidence. OK, then he would go away for that. But he would still have to do the three years for the physical evidence. That makes sense. Well, the judge in this case did not mince her final words. She said your selfish, narcissistic and possibly addicted fueled behavior led to the devastation of your family. She spoke of the impact his actions would have on the young school aged children. The ripple effect is going to be lifelong. Every time someone speaks of family in front of your children, they're going to relive this pain. Friends and family members provided their statements and lamented on the loss of Maureen. 
They called her a saint, and they would deeply grieve on not being able to pick up the phone and swap stories of their day, share recipes, make suggestions on the next television show to binge watch together. They despaired on the milestones she would miss with her children, prom, driving permits, weddings, all that stuff. Maureen's children lost their mother and father. This, again, story after story on here that we, we talk about where one person does something so horrible and destructive, and then they literally obliterate both parents for their children. It's so It so baffles my mind how someone could be so heartless and so cold to their own children. We did an internet search and were able to discover there was an older GoFundMe page where family and friends acknowledged that the children had suffered an abrupt loss, and it indicated that the children were in custody of a family member. So that does it for that bad nurse story or bad physician assistant story. Yeah, that was depressing. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm always good for, if nothing else, a nice depressing story. Yeah, someone is just you know snuffing out another smile that lights up rooms, and this wonderful social worker that's I know. doing all this amazing work. Yeah, and, and yeah, so it's bad stuff. It is bad. I always hope you know that somehow talking about these stories and shedding light, you know, shining a light in the, this dark, horrible stuff that happens, can maybe make a difference and change some course of action that somebody would have. Maybe it would help give some, you know, galvanize someone and give them the strength that they need to be able to get away from an abusive situation. Maybe it would cause someone who was going to do something like this, some bad thing to maybe not want the repercussions of it, not maybe not want to spend the rest of their lives in jail. And maybe they would think twice. I don't know. Maybe. Well, at least they won't hire a hitman from, if they listen to your show at all, they've learned that. Well, maybe. These stories keep coming up. It's so easy to find. And they're fresh new stories this is a relatively new story that happened and i've been doing this podcast now for going on four years and you would think uh you can turn on the television at any time you know if i'm having to be in a hotel and i forgot my roku and i don't have netflix and and hulu and i actually have to watch a regular television oh oh the horror oh um but it's it's fine. I can still find true crime. All it's always on there. There's always some like forensic files playing twenty four seven. This stuff has been going on for decades, and still people think they can get away with stuff somehow. I don't know how. I'll never understand it. You know, I can say with a hundred percent certainty that becoming a nurse was one of the smartest decisions I've ever made. It's helped me to gain confidence, and it's given me a career that has purpose. I can go home at the end of the day knowing I've made a difference in someone's life. But look, feeling certain wasn't always the case. Some of you probably remember the horror stories I've told about my experience as a new grad. I didn't feel supported, and I almost gave up on nursing because of that. That's why I'm always telling you all to find a hospital that has a nurse residency program. Well, HCA Healthcare wants you to know all about their nurse residency program. It's everything I wish I would have known as a new grad, and more. It's designed to help new nurses succeed. It's going to help you build your confidence with hands-on clinical experience while developing your critical thinking skills. You'll be supported by a community of experienced nurses and fellow nurses 
nurse residents. You can build a foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. And becoming a nurse resident with HCA Healthcare comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement, student loan assistance, clear pathways to help you achieve your professional goals, and access to company-wide clinical education programs. You know, if I could give my younger nurse-to-be self any advice, it would have been to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. They accept applications from nursing students who are preparing to graduate within the next six months or graduate nursing students who have six months or less of experience when they apply. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. I guess we can get into our good nurse story. For today's good nurse story, we have a very special guest, someone who I've talked about many times on this podcast. We've been following this story closely for the past several years, and she's getting close to her trial date. So we're going to dedicate another good nurse story to get her story out there, make sure everyone knows what's going on with this tragic case. So I want to welcome Redonda Vaught to the show. Welcome, Redonda. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking uh, the time to come on the show. I know things are getting, you know, it's kind of getting down to the wire now. It must be very stressful for you. So I appreciate you coming on here so that we can make sure that we get the story straight and get all the details correct and get your story out there, really. First of all, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, I want to do a quick recap of what all has happened. I want to make sure that everyone understands exactly what happened to the T in this story. And so we're going to recap it, go all the way back to the beginning and just kind of do a a pretty brief, um, I think it won't take maybe five to seven minutes uh, to do this. And then we'll get into talking to Redonda and find out how she's handling all of this and get any updates to the case that she has. So on December the 24th in 2017, Charlene Murphy, a 75-year-old woman, was admitted to Vanderbilt University with a subdural hematoma or bleeding on the brain where Redonda worked as an intensive care unit nurse. So two days later, Miss Murphy had improved. And as a precaution, just to make sure they hadn't missed anything, a PET scan was ordered. Miss Murphy was taken down to radiology for the PET scan and was getting anxious about the procedure. So staff in the radiology department called to the unit to let Miss Murphy's nurse know that she wasn't going to be able to tolerate the scan. So rather than have her miss getting her scan, the nurse requested an order for Versed or midazolam to sedate her. So the nurse asked Redonda, who happened to be working that day in the unit as a help all nurse, to go down to radiology and give the Versed. So Redonda had a, a student following her that day. So she went into the med room where the medication was kept in a locked cabinet. So we have an Omnicell where I work, but I know that there are different brands of the same type of cabinet. 
they're electronic and you have to enter the name of the person you're withdrawing the medication for and then enter the name of the medication in order to get it to come out of the cabinet. For some, if you enter their name, all of their medications just populate. So usually they're designed so that you may not remove a medication that's not ordered by a provider and verified by a pharmacist unless it's an IV medication for emergency purposes. And in that case, you have to hit override. So when Redonda pulled up Miss Murphy's name, Versed was not listed as one of the medications ordered for her. So later on, we're going to find out that there were problems with the system and nurses were required to routinely hit override when pulling standard medications out of the cabinet. That is very important in this particular case. So Redonda had to type in the name of the medication. And so she started typing the name of the drug, Versed, and then one medication came up. Now the medication that came up was Vecaronium. So this is obviously the first mistake made in this process. But before you start thinking this couldn't happen to you, how many of you refer to medications by their brand name rather than the generic? It happens all the time. Most nurses are not familiar with generic names of medications, but usually the generic names sometimes are longer versions of the brand name. So can you see how if you type in VE and one medication comes up and you have a student following you, which can be very distracting, you may be thinking that the name that came up is the generic name of the drug you were looking for. So you grab it without thinking. So Redonda pulled that medication out, reconstituted it with sterile water. Then she took it down to radiology. So now keep in mind that down there, there was no computer. There was no scanning mechanism that she could use to verify the medication order. So without a computer there, it is impossible for any nurse to verify the five rights of medication administration that we all are supposed to do. She administered what she thought was midazolam or Versed, which would ordinarily only cause mild sedation depending on the amount. And, I, and I'm sure the, the dosage that was would be required for somebody to just be relaxed in order to be able to get their PET scan would not be a significant amount. And then she left to go do another task in the emergency department because she had been called to do something else. So now the medication that had been given to Miss Murphy was a paralytic that is used when intubating patients to keep them still. So there was a nearby staff member that noticed Miss Murphy looked like she was not breathing and they called for help and began CPR. So Miss Murphy was intubated and placed back in the ICU. Her family was noti notified that her prognosis was poor and that she would not likely survive. She was removed from the ventilator on December 27th and her death was reported to the Davison County Medical Examiner. When notifying the medical examiner of Miss Murphy's death, there was no mention of the medication error. Instead, her death was attributed to the brain bleed she had suffered previously and there was no further investigation into the incident. So when this incident initially occurred, Redonda immediately told the hospital administration exactly what happened, wrote it out in a detailed incident report that is designed to help the hospital identify safety concerns and make changes to the system to keep patients safe. This is something that is done in hospitals all over the country and is not supposed to be punitive. Most nurses and other medical professionals are under the impression, because they are given the impression, that we work in a just culture, which means it is understood that if you know, we can make mistakes, we are human, and we shouldn't have to be afraid to report mistakes so that we can improve the system and prevent future incidents. So in early 2018, Redonda was fired by Vanderbilt 
Vanderbilt settled out of court with Miss Murphy's family, and they were required not to speak publicly about the about the event. Uh, later on in 2018, someone anonymously notified both state and federal health officials about the medication error that happened prior to Miss Murphy's death, and the Tennessee Department of Health decided not to take disciplinary action. This is later. This is um, October the 23rd in 2018. So this is almost a year later. The Tennessee Department of Health, I just want to make sure that you guys are listening and paying attention to what I'm about to say, because this is very significant. They decided not to take disciplinary action because her case, quote, did not constitute a violation of the statutes and or rules governing the profession. And she was sent a letter the same day that stated, quote, this matter did not merit further action. I just want to make sure that sinks in late October, early November, after the anonymous tip, CMS, the Center for Medica- Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, they conducted a surprise visit to Vanderbilt. And they confirmed what the tip had suggested, that Miss Murphy had died after a medication error. And they threatened to suspend Vanderbilt's Medicare payments, which would have crippled the hospital's revenue if Vanderbilt had could not prove that it had, it had taken steps to keep something like this from happening again. So Vanderbilt comes back with a plan of correction that seems to keep CMS at bay and they are able to keep their Medicare reimbursements, but they don't want to release the plan of correction to the public. So then in February of 2019, Redonda is arrested and charged criminally with reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse. So I just wanna make sure that you understand how significant this is, that a nurse who who made a medication error was arrested and charged criminally with reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse. On February the 5th, Vanderbilt executives had to appear before the Tennessee Board of Licensing Healthcare Facilities. The CEO of Vanderbilt admitted the death wasn't reported and said the hospital's response was, quote, too limited. The board chose not to take disciplinary action against Vanderbilt. So Redonda appeared in court for the first time in February, on February 20th, entered a a plea of not guilty to all charges, of course. On August 20th, 2019, the medical examiner changed the manner of death to accidental, accidental, after being made aware of the medication error. So on September 27th, 2019, the Tennessee Department of Health changed its mind and decided to pursue discipline action against Redonda, even though her account of the events had never changed. They charged her with unprofessional conduct, abandoning or neglecting a patient that required care, and failing to maintain an accurate patient record. They never stated why they changed their minds about pursuing discipline action against her. So in July of 2021, just this past year, past year, her license was revoked by the Tennessee Board of Nursing after a hearing where she was able to give her account of what happened. Redonda's criminal trial, criminal trial, finally, all these couple of years later, is about to begin March 21st in Nashville, Tennessee. Redonda, are there any details in that timeline that you would like to clarify or add to? The devil is in the details, and it would take probably hours. It's probably every time I've given a detailed account of this, it's an hour and a half. I mean, it's a lengthy amount of information because the details are very important. 
But the the fact of the matter is, you're right, it hasn't changed. No detail, any of part of that account has changed to anyone that I spoke with, not the multitude of investigators from the Department of Health, not in the Veritas report, not anyone at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, not anyone from the TBI. You know, the facts are the facts. And I think I've been pretty candid about the mistakes that I made uh, and the things that I should have done. Hindsight is twenty twenty, But I think what we can focus on, we can't change the past, but history does repeat itself. People will make mistakes. We're humans. We're not perfect. And we need to protect patients like Ms. Murphy and all other future patients, because if something like this could happen to me, it can and will happen to someone else. And if we already know that there are problems or issues or the Swiss holes are going to line up and one microscopic mistake is going to make it through, then don't we have an obligation to try to make this, our system better? You know, healthcare workers aren't bad people where the majority of us are really good people. That's why nurses are voted the most trusted profession year after year. I think with the exception of nine 11, you know, when firefighters receive that notification, but I, I think that it's important that, we have to be honest. We have to be honest. And that's the biggest takeaway. I, I have nothing to lie about. I know what I did and whatever happens in this case is going to happen. But I, I don't want nurses or healthcare staff in general to lose their faith that the right thing should still be done. You still have an obligation to those patients, to yourself, to their families to do the right thing. I don't know what's going to happen with this, but I think that's the most important takeaway is that we have an obligation to do the right thing. Yes, absolutely. Tom, do you have any questions? What is troubling for me and hard to understand is the system of checks into the investigation. I'm not even talking about the day in question. I'm talking about all the after effects and all the people that looked into this and how everyone said, no, this is clearly not an intentional mistake. This was not made to be harmful. And now it is. And I'm just wondering, I know Miss Tina said that there, nobody has been able to explain it, but has anyone gave you any insight into what changed? I have my theories. Okay. It, and, and honestly, that's may, that may be all we have until all the dust settles, but it's, it's that for me as a medical professional. Well, and it should be for anybody. Really, when people can look into your case and say, no, nothing's wrong. And then suddenly it's almost like a double double jeopardy issue. Like someone has looked at this. Someone has surmised that nothing bad happened, but then they get to go back and do it again when they feel like it. And that bothers me both as an American and as a medical professional. It should be concerning because I have always felt that if the appropriate entities were notified and things were reported as they should have been, then we wouldn't be here in this situation if everyone would have been made aware and everyone would have done what they should have done. I filed my report. I was transparent. I told people what happened. There's nothing else I could have done to try to offer some sort of corrective plan to this situation other than to just be honest as soon as I was aware that this mistake happened. Unfortunately, other entities did not take that path. And that's not on me. But you know, that that's why we're here. 
Redonda, can you tell our listeners about the impact this whole situation has had on you and your life the past few years? You know, I have had a lot of time to to sit and, and think about this. There isn't a single day that doesn't go by that I don't think about what happened, um, the effects of my actions on an entire family of people um, and someone's life, you know, that's no longer there. That's a heavy it's a heavy thing to carry around, but at the same time, it will, it will give you a, a different perspective. You don't know what it's like to be humbled until you've had to go through something like this and have the amount of kindness given to you that people have given to me. I was fortunate to still have three years worth of work after this, which was able to prove to myself that I could still offer my profession something, even though I couldn't be at the bedside or even in a hospital. Um, you know, for the last two years, I've worked from my house and did a, a bed management position. I still had something to give to the profession and, and that was helpful for me, but, it, but it's been tough, but there people go through worse things. You know, I'm still here and I have to be thankful for that. Miss Murphy's life is she'll never get her life back. And I feel like I should be living my life and setting a good example for what it means to just be a good human and a good person just out of respect for her and her family. And so that's, yeah, that's what I try to do each day. Uh, I, I can't imagine. I just, I, I, I don't have the ability as, as you said, um, you know, I haven't been through that. It's really hard to imagine it. But nurses are empathetic people, right? That's what we do. Empathy is like our sixth or seventh sense. We have it. And I think that's what makes nurses so good at what we do. You know, we're not the ones who are determining what a diagnosis is or writing orders for it, but we're the ones that are there touching people's lives for 12 hours a day, you know, three days a week. However, you're the ones that are there and you're making the impact and Maybe the worst day that you ever had is that you put your shoe on the wrong foot, but that's the worst day that you've ever had, right? And you have to empathize with people. And so I think that nurses empathize with this situation because they can look back and see, oh my gosh, what would this potential outcome from situation A, B, or C in my past practice, what could that have been? And you can see how it could go terribly wrong. And then you do see, we just, I mean, you see sad things that happen to good people all the time in this profession. It's really hard not to be able to empathize with people about just the shitty things that happen. And we, we do, we have those days. We've all had those days. And I think that's honestly one of the greatest things that have come out of this is just the, the empathy and the caring that I've felt from the nursing community. It's been, it's been huge and it, it means so much. It means so much. Is there anything our listeners can do to show support to help you in any way? I know I, I pretty, you have a GoFundMe account. Is that still active? It is. You know, at this point, the attorney fees have been taken care of. I think that the most important thing that people can do is just to just to be aware, be aware of what is happening outside of your tiny bubble of your practice. As nurses, we don't get together um, in our larger organizations that support us. We don't lobby for protection and laws that protect our practice. 
we just go to work in the trenches and do the best we can for 12 hours at a time. Be aware, be aware. You have a lot to lose. You have your time, your livelihood, the money that you've spent on this, on the education to get you to this career, you know, your future retirement, your mental health. You have to, you have to be aware of things that are going on outside of just your bubble and your practice or the hospital that you work in. Um, and you know what? (laughs) I hate that this is where I am because I decided to tell the truth about what happened, but I don't want that. I don't want that to speak to an entire generation of future nurses and brand new nurses that are coming in, in the middle of a pandemic, things are already terrible enough. Don't let that stop you from doing the right thing or saying the right thing. You should never, you should never do something that is going to hide the truth when the truth can really potentially be what saves your patient, the repercussions and future patients, you know, and I hope that whatever comes out of this, that the public people who don't even work in healthcare, I hope that they're able to see you're never really going to without working in healthcare, be able to see what the culture should be like, but I hope that they can get a little bit of an understanding um, of what it's like and what our, what just culture should be like in healthcare you know, it's important. It's important that we set that as a standard everywhere across the country in every facility, hospitals or you know, outpatient clinics. It doesn't matter. We need to be able to be honest and when we're doing our jobs. And I don't want, I just hope that this doesn't stop people from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Tom, do you have any final thoughts for the question I had in mind was, you know, what would you say? Well, no, you, you answered it you've already you've already done more than enough you know be aware and i think that's a great message i you know i've been er been icu now i'm a provider and everything you said as far as i'm concerned my opinion is right on the money you know from from both nursing knowing you did your best and being open and honest about it to being a provider i i think most of us understand situations arise but if nurses aren't able to be honest, it's going to make this profession almost impossible. And so I thank you for being open and candid about everything you've said. And I think you're correct. I think we have to be able to be open and just if we want to continue to be the best profession that we are. And so I, you, you said everything I was going to ask. And I just want you to know that, you know, a lot of us have been, or have thought at least like, what if I were in your shoes? And I think you have handled it with way more grace than most of us would. So, well, the ungraceful days are hidden behind my doors. I just, you know, it's okay. (laughs) There, there are good days and bad days, but I'm still here. And I, I really appreciate you guys keeping people informed. I hope that the nursing community and the healthcare community will, maybe make some changes for the better after this. And I hope that it doesn't, you know, this shouldn't shed a negative light on nursing because me as one person made a mistake that ended someone's life. We need to find a bigger takeaway from that than just the point the finger, you know, and, and sweep this under the rug. Look at the situation. 
Well, I'd like to express my sincere appreciation to Redonda for agreeing to come on the show and share her story. I'd also like to express my sincere condolences to the family of Charlene Murphy. This tragedy is every good nurse's worst nightmare. And I just hope that this story will serve to edu- educate institutions and individuals of the importance of healthcare workers being able to practice in an environment where we can learn from our mistakes in order to prevent events like this in the future. We're hopeful that Redonda will be found not guilty of all charges, but even then her life has been turned upside down for the past three years as, as she has faced the possibility of becoming a convicted felon and placed on the state registry for people convicted of elder abuse. Maybe you think you couldn't make this same exact mistake Redonda made, but could you make any mistake at all that could result in a patient's death? Because of this case, we are all at risk, especially if she is convicted, because a precedent will be set. Our criminal justice system has chosen to come after a nurse for making a medication error that has led to a death. If you think she should lose her license and never practice nursing again, that is your right. And I would be willing to have that debate with you. But to charge her criminally for making a mistake, our healthcare system is already buckling under the weight of overrun hospitals and staffing shortages. This is only going to cause more nurses to leave the bedside. It was bad enough having to worry about losing our license for making a mistake, but now we have to worry about becoming a convicted felon and losing our freedom. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I appreciate you guys for listening. And I just want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Good nurse.